A reading from the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of this, and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully explaining the word of truth, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In the final season of Mad Men, we get to watch Don Draper finally paying for all of his sins. If you're even tacitly familiar with the show, you should know that Don struggled with chronic infidelity. Putting it mildly, he had bullish tendencies toward his co-workers. And he had this deep inability to truly care about anybody else but himself. And all of these things in the final season of the show come home to roost. And so he stays nearly constantly inebriated so as to not have to think about the mess that his life has become. And slowly but surely, he begins to lose everything that he's built, everything that is important to him. And so we find Don at a meditation retreat center in a very 1960s hippie style, and he is apparently finding himself. The ending of the show is fairly ambivalent, and if you've seen it, you'll know that Don sort of turns his inner transformation into one more really killer ad campaign for Coca-Cola. So I don't really know that he learned any lessons. But I think it speaks to an obsession that our culture has currently with the inner journey. And one of the more recent buzzwords for this is mindfulness. Practicing mindfulness, whatever that may actually mean, is the new thing with Silicon Valley CEOs and Fortune 500 VPs, those types of people. And the catch, of course, is that for many of those folks, mindfulness is just another means toward greater productivity, right? It's about increasing the bottom line. It's not about actually relaxing and getting recentered. It's about filling up that bank account even more. Then there's this part about 
mindfulness that gets really strange to me, right? Because already you have sort of the, the New Age hippie crowd over here, and then the Wall Street crowd over here, and they're kind of doing similar things, but for very different reasons. And then there's this growing number of people in the middle who are experiencing substantial psychological damage as a result of practicing mindfulness. And researchers are still trying to grasp onto the reasons as to why this is happening, but it's becoming clear that for some people, sitting quietly and being aware of yourself in certain ways can cause prolonged damage. People report a disturbing loss of identity, unwanted violent thoughts, self-hatred, panic attacks, all the way up to full-on psychological breaks. Turns out if you want to feel good about yourself, sitting quietly with your thoughts might not be the way to go. If you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Our New Testament lesson this evening is sort of piling on with what we talked about last week as Paul is passing down his authority as an apostle in Christ to Timothy the bishop. And in the sort of interstitial text that we didn't have read last week or this week, Paul has just finished telling Timothy about all of the people that have abandoned him now that he is chained and imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And so here is St. Paul having undergone hardship upon hardship, who now has people claiming to be Christian who are abandoning him when hardship strikes closer to home. And then there's Timothy, this young bishop in a hostile empire, trying to lead fledgling churches while his mentor and spiritual father is imprisoned far away. This text is all about endurance. In the metaphors that we use here at All Souls, it's endurance in the long journey out onto Christ our ocean. We have to get in the boat and go out. Or, or, or it's the grueling trek up into Christ our mountain, but we have to climb. We have to engage following Christ. And in Paul's metaphors, it's usually a race. It's a marathon that takes every ounce of strength and mindfulness. But as we'll see, it requires a strength and mindfulness from outside of ourselves, which is a very different thing than what the gurus of the feel-good movement have in mind. Did you guys see that dude run that marathon in under two hours, by the way? And then he's just sprinting around with the flag afterwards, focus, right? Everything that guy has been doing in his life has led up to that moment. This is part of the metaphor that Paul is using. Paul opts three of them out for us in rapid fire here, and the three sort of complement each other, and I think they end up describing the Bible's version of mindfulness, which isn't mindfulness. It's a very ancient idea. It's Hebraic, and it's wholeheartedness, right? The, just the idea that our culture is now obsessing with mindfulness reveals that we still are stuck in thinking that everything happens here. But it doesn't. It all happens here. This is how we get pulled through the world, down here in our stomachs, in our guts. This is what ancient Hebrew people understood far better than we do, that it's down here in our desires. So wholeheartedness is sort of the ancient version of what we have limited and, and sort of pared down into mindfulness. And so here's Paul's metaphors. Soldiers. Soldiers were to be dedicated and focused. In wartime, they could not get distracted with the things that ordinary citizens might be distracted by. 
Instead, they had to endure hardship and difficulty and assault, and they had to do it with an aim toward pleasing the commanding officer. Nobody in the military is just going around doing whatever they want. They do what the guy in charge tells them to do. Similarly, athletes, just like this gentleman who ran a marathon in record time, they had to wrestle or run with endurance, but they had to be obedient to the laws of the game, right? If it comes out that this guy somehow juiced or cheated or something, his title's gone. His record is out the window. It's got the little asterisk next to it. Athletes had to be obedient to the laws of the game or else they would have run in vain. Similarly, farmers had to work tirelessly with patience and diligence. They had to endure painstaking labor in all weather, in all seasons. This is what's worth meditation, Paul says. Think it over, Timothy, and the Lord himself will give you understanding. If you've uh, taken a, a confirmation or membership class here, uh, you've maybe seen my really terrible drawing of a compass that makes no sense until I explain it. But the idea is that we, as the church, as part of Christ's mystical body on earth, are journeying toward God himself. Right? The, the whole point of the Christian life is that we are growing deeper and deeper into God's own life. And as we take this journey together, we, we have this compass that we use with these four plot points on the compass that, that helps us make sure that we are oriented correctly as we climb up into Christ our mountain and follow after him as a disciple. And I think this text actually helps illuminate for us these four points on the compass. And so what I want to say to you this evening is that this text is a call to apostolic mindfulness or wholeheartedness, sacramental mindfulness, eschatological mindfulness, and gospel mindfulness, all of which is to say it is a mindfulness of Christ. As Paul says in one of his letters, we have been given the mind of Christ. So when you take a step back and you recall what we talked about last week, you, you realize that Paul is really passing the baton here. He seems to have an idea that his imprisonment is not going to end well. And if you'll recall his sort of, you know, on the Damascus Road story of salvation, he was shown everything that he would suffer for Christ. And it's like he knows that his end is near. And so he's writing out almost like his last testament. And he's adjuring Timothy to take the deposit that has been passed on to him, handed down, traditioned, and this is what I was talking about last week when I said that we are apostolic people. Paul received the gospel from Christ himself in a revelation. It's this deposit of riches that is entrusted to him and the other apostles. And these apostles then went about preaching the gospel and raising up leaders, bishops, priests, and deacons in the church who would be trustworthy to guard this deposit in turn. And what Paul tells Timothy here may at first glance sound really familiar to some of the mindfulness gurus of our own day. He says, my child, be strengthened, right? Superwoman posture. Get out there. Get those arms out. Be strengthened. If it ended there, I wonder if Timothy might have suffered from similar afflictions to those of modern mindfulness practitioners gone wrong. Be strong? I mean, Timothy, by all accounts, was a very young guy. His spiritual father is in a Roman jail. He's never going to get out. And now he's stuck 
in Asia Minor or wherever he was, trying to plant churches for this new movement while everyone is breathing down his neck with persecution and forsaking him. Be strong. I think herein lies a key difference between Christian meditation and every other form of meditation available. Timothy's strength is not found in himself. It is not merely a look inward. It is a look toward Christ. Be mindful of Christ, Timothy. Timothy, you will be strengthened in your faith and in the work that you have been called to do by calling to mind the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In being mindful of Christ, Timothy is being called upon to be mindful of the message that Paul preached to him and to in turn entrust the teaching and message that he has been handed on to others, to faithful people. The apostolic message that Timothy is to remain mindful of is not one that's just simply fuzzy, feel-good memories. It is bedrock Christian doctrine and dogma. And Paul sums it up for us in verse 8. He says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. This is maybe one of the most genius summations of the gospel in Scripture. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed. There's a whole accordion file of information in the Hebrew Bible about what this means that we don't have time to get into. But just starting there for Paul, he's got just tons of meaning in two words. Jesus is the anointed one of God. He's the promised seed of Abraham. And he died for our transgressions. And in raising him from the dead, God the Father is assuring all people that Jesus Christ is his son. That he is fully divine. True God from true God, as we say in the creed. But notice he's also the offspring of David. He is fully man. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man, as the creed says. And this Christology is one of the cornerstones of orthodoxy. This is what it means to be a Christian in, in like five small words. And from Paul's day all the way down to today, most heresies come in some form of denial that either that Jesus was truly man or truly God. Most heresies are going to deny one of those, right? That he was either just this sort of Superman character who looked human but couldn't really feel pain or take on death, or that he was just this really good guy who achieved some sort of elevated mystical state. That's not Christianity. Christianity has always said what Paul is here passing down to Bishop Timothy. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the descendant of David. In maintaining an apostolic memory, the church and her shepherds have maintained the truth of the gospel now for 2,000 years. And it is in the act of remembering apostolic doctrine that the church finds the pathway up Christ our mountain. We have to guard the treasure that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man because that which is not assumed is not redeemed. 
And just one good human being dying for another human being doesn't work. We need someone from outside. And the apostolic message contains this for us. We have to be apostolically minded. But notice also the sacramental mindfulness that Timothy is being called to. It's impossible, impossible to be told to remember Jesus Christ, as Paul says to him here, without being immediately reminded of the institution of the Eucharist. When Jesus says, do these things in remembrance of me. Jesus told this to his disciples as he gave them the bread and the wine, his body and blood of the new covenant. And Paul says to the Corinthian church that this is what he handed down to them, that which he received. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And what Paul tells the Corinthian church is that in so doing, in acting out this liturgy ritual, you are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. But notice how endurance itself is also in a mysterious way sacramental. Paul's ministry is marked by suffering, and as he invites Timothy to share in his leadership in passing on the deposit of riches in the apostolic witness to the gospel message, Timothy is being invited to share in those sufferings. As I told you last week, Paul coined a term. So strongly did he feel about Timothy entering in, he, he called him a co-sufferer. Join in on the suffering, he says. And elsewhere, St. Paul makes very clear that his suffering for the sake of the gospel is a participation in the suffering of Christ. In his letter to the Colossian church, St. Paul tells them that his suffering on their behalf is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. And here he tells Timothy that the suffering he is enduring for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. He's enduring suffering for the sake of the elect that they could obtain salvation. Paul isn't saying that he, his suffering is saving anybody. But he is recognizing that his participation in Christ as an apostle is a sacramental reality that binds him to Christ and to Christ's church. And he is inviting Timothy as a young bishop to join in to this sacramental reality. The reason that we call this a holy Eucharist service, Eucharist means thanksgiving, and it's one of the terms for the sacrament of communion. We call it that because those of us who have been baptized into Christ's death and raised from the waters to new life are entering into a memory of participation. That's what's happening here. It is a memory of participation. Each week, the word gets broken open to us again, and that same Christological bedrock foundation is told to us again. Jesus Christ, God and man, crucified for the life of the world. And then we are invited into the suffering of Christ by way of the Eucharistic sacrament. In just a minute, I'm going to say, Alleluia, Christ our sacrifice. Our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. To have a sacramental mindfulness is to participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's what we're doing when we're eating and drinking his body and blood. 
We're participating in his suffering so we can go out there and learn how to be people who can suffer for his sake in order that we might also share in his resurrection. Paul says this over and over and over again in his letters. Suffer with Christ so you can share in his resurrection. This is sacramental mindfulness. Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel so that the elect might obtain salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory is this eschatological mindfulness. The eschaton is the end. It's not an end time, it's the end of time. It's after time is done away with and we all exist in the eternal presence of God's own life. And this is what Paul has in view here. He sums it up in an epigram in verses 11 to 13. To have been brought into the church is to have been made alive by the Spirit with the apostolic proclamation of the gospel and the sacrament of baptism wherein we died and were buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. And while in other places Paul will stress that we are already now alive in Christ, here he puts an eschatological edge on it. He says that we will live with him. In the age to come, we will have obtained our salvation fully as resurrected people. There's no inertia in salvation in the theology of Paul. It's always propelling us toward the future. It's a gift from the future that's been pulled back into the present that now drags us into the future wherein we will exist again in that eternality of God. And in enduring the suffering that we have been brought into, Paul tells us, we will reign with Christ. In the Apostle John's first epistle, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In the eschaton, at Christ's return, all things will be made plain. And those who have, through the Spirit's grace, placed all of their hope in Christ rather than their own attempts at life, their own efforts at law-keeping or meaning-making, those who have recognized that apart from Christ, they have no life in themselves, those who came down into death in baptism will be bestowed with the crown of life. But, Paul says, for those that deny him, they will be denied. Our faithlessness does not sway him to be unfaithful to himself, and it is Christ himself who said, those who acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge in the presence of my Father, and those who deny me before men, I will deny. There's a very key slightly tangential to this text, but very key point to be made here, and that is this. It is not sin that results in being denied by Christ. It's not even gross sin. Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He came to seek and to save the lost and to heal the sick, not, as Robert Capon would say, to improve the improvable. Jesus did not come to offer coaching tips to people that basically have it all together. No, the thing in view here is apostasy. 
It's actually turning away from Jesus altogether. And the reason that the New Testament is so strong about not engaging in habitual sin is not because that sin is going to somehow cut you out of Jesus' grace. It's grace. It's because the further you go along that path, the easier it is to say, ah, it doesn't matter, and to walk away entirely. Apostasy is a denial of the apostolic message that Christ is God and man and that his death and resurrection on your behalf is what secures you in God's kingdom. This is the thing that we have to constantly call, back, call ourselves back to week and week and week after week. And this brings us to having a gospel mindfulness. And if it's not already obvious, these axes all fold in on one another. To have an eschatological mindfulness, to, to be aware in our imaginations that one day Christ will be all in all and he will rule over all things, is to have a gospel mindfulness. It is to constantly remember Christ and him crucified. And it is to recall that his resurrection is proof as Paul says in one of his sermons in the book of Acts, it's proof that God has given Christ authority to judge all of the earth. To have a gospel mindfulness is to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells Timothy here. And the gospel message reminds us that we are fickle, faithless people, but that Jesus is a good and merciful God. So whatever you've done this week, wherever you've been, you know the one thing that Satan would love for you to do is to feel so ashamed that you never come back. That's not the gospel. The gospel is to repent, and in a minute we're going to confess our sins together, and we're going to receive absolution from Christ himself so that we can come and participate in his suffering in the Eucharist meal. The gospel tells us that we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under Christ's table, but he is the same Lord who always delights in showing mercy. So how do we come to this altar? Not trusting in our own righteousness, but in Christ's abundant and great mercies. And the reason that you should never stop coming to this table is so that you might remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.